This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Can you stand with me? We're going to read Titus chapter 3, verse 8. We're going to read one verse today, but I, I do want us to stand, and here's the reason why. I want us to make sure that we remember this is God's word. The standing is a sign of respect, but it's also a posture of listening uh, for us to hear and to respect and hear God's word. Verse 8 says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, people have theologically wrestled with, um, with uh, salvation for a long time. A, a long time, if you will. And the struggle around the theological debate, if you will, of salvation mostly has to do, if I could boil it down to, how am I saved? And how do I know that I am saved? And what gets mixed into that is the question of what role does good works do with my salvation? What role does good works play in my salvation? And the wrestle has been for a long time, um, and, and, and the, the teachings are vast. There's so many people who have taught on this and have spent hours and hours in classes on this. And so it is a confusing topic, one in which people have wrestled with. And so I want to lower your expectations today about my preaching and tell you my aim is not to fix your wrestle with this. That's not my aim. Um, but I do want to point out a few things. As much as I love education and as much as I love, um, I, I love classes and teaching and those kinds of things, I want to ask you guys a question to kind of illustrate the importance of something in which shapes us more than that. Let me ask you a question. In the first service, everybody was ready to throw their hand up. How many of y'all have been raised in or a part of dysfunctional family? All right, y'all are just dysfunctional. Let's be real. First service, everybody's like, right here. Didn't even care. I know some of y'all kids are afraid to raise your hand because your parents are sitting right there, right? So maybe I should ask the question, how many of y'all are creating dysfunctional families? Okay, not even afraid to raise your hand. All right. Dysfunction is normal in our society. Matter of fact, healthy family is almost weird. Um. And because of that, family and parenting has been replaced with education. And here's what I I mean by that. Um, A lot of these theological truths that we really wrestle with, we're trying to understand educationally. We're trying to find the class that will unlock our minds to help us understand salvation and the role of good works in that. But the reality is these kinds of things are better understood by people who are a part of good families. Here's what I mean by that. 
discipleship that is isolated to education, meaning us sitting around and me teaching you things and you just trying to get it in your knowledge is actually helping you become smarter or more knowledge, but it's not actually helping you actually live out the things that you need to learn and walk in. It just causes a lot of tension in our hearts and minds. But the way that we really start to understand something is through life on life family. That's the way you start to understand something. And because of dysfunctional family, many of us have a hard time understanding theological truths. Let me, let me explain it this way. It is easier for somebody who's raised in a healthy family or a part of a healthy community to understand that they are fully loved and fully accepted and they have expectations that they need to live up to. When I walk into my kids, and this is a poor example, but when I walk into them and I say, turn your video game off. There's not a question in their mind, hopefully, that that's attached to the fact that that is my child and I love them. And if they don't turn the video game off, I won't love them anymore. But because of my deep love and affection that's been showed and proven and reminded of and walked through and provided for, my prayer is when I go in and say, turn the video game off, whether they like it or not, they turn it off. Why? Because they know that I'm telling them something that is for their health and for their good and something that they need to live into. In healthy family, there's not a tension between you are fully loved and I want you to do something. But only in dysfunction, where children are having to prove themselves to earn the love of their children, do they struggle with a God who would have something for them to do and fully love them. That's why in Titus chapter 2, it makes it clear that the way you're going to learn things is when older and younger interact, with men and women interact, when all kinds of people who are a part of the family of God are living life on life, the way we start to understand theology is through the embodiments of God's people. Hear me on this. When Jesus left this earth, he didn't leave this with us. He left us His people, His disciples. And by the power of the Spirit, He anointed them to write this book and inspired them to speak it to us. But Jesus did not pen this with His hand. He inspired us by His Spirit, His people, to bring us His Word. And here's what we have done. We've taken this Word and said, you should just study it, and you should just get knowledge, and you should just get these theology, and then we've disembodied it and realized that the world is only going to know the Gospel when we start living this stuff out. Not when we preach another message. Church, much of discipleship, and I hope you write this down, much of discipleship is reparenting, refamilying, which is a word I made up, <laughs> and reminding. Much of discipleship is reparenting, refamilying, and reminding. Here's what I mean by that. Because 
of the complete and utter dysfunction of family. Because of the complete and utter dysfunction of community and leadership and parenting. The reason why not only are we called into relationship with Christ, but relationship with one another as a family is because we have so personalized our relationship with God that we have a only child syndrome. Here's what I mean by that. You come into a relationship with Christ and you go, it's just me and Jesus, personal relationship with God. And all that matters is my relationship with Jesus. And you have an only child, an only child syndrome where all that matters is yours and his relationship. But he hasn't brought you into just a personal relationship. He's brought you into a family. And in that family where it's not this only child syndrome, but you're a part of a, a community and a family where you're not the center of it. That, 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 what? Did you just say that? Uh, no, he didn't, right? You're telling me I'm not the center of the world? Thanks be to God you're not, because I would hate to worship you, right? In a family, the best thing about being a part of a family is that there is this reality of us rather than just me. And what we learn in community is we start to understand the realities of the gospel in ways we never could in a classroom. We start to understand the tensions of Scripture through the embodiment of his people rather than us thinking we can just come up with some tricky way to teach it. You need to be a part of the people of God because you need a family. You need to be a part of the people of God because you need to be reparented. And you need to be a part of the people of God because you need to be reminded. First verse Paul says something extremely important to his son in the ministry, and I highlight son because of the family context to that. His son, he calls Titus his son, and here's what he says to him in verse 8, the very first section. This is a trustworthy statement. This is a trustworthy saying, meaning that something they said is trustworthy now when that when you look at that word saying it it doesn't just mean they said it once it was far more creedal a creedal statement or a hymn or a liturgical material here's what i mean by that this was something that they would stand and say or stand and sing this is something they repeated over and 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 over over and over and over. Are you tired of that? That sounds like parenting to me. How many times do you have to repeat stuff to your kids? I just told you one minute ago and you're going to tell me you forgot? Like I literally said it, walked out of the room and I come back in and say, why aren't you doing it? And you say, I forgot. Like literally you have a, a 30 second mem remembrance, right? Paul's saying, what you have repeated, this, this song, this statement, we learn better in, in repetition than we realize. I, I remember my phone number 
from when I was a kid because my mom taught it to me in a song. I'm a very busy bee. I make honey in a tree. I'm a very busy bee. I make honey in a tree. 432-2005. That's the number of my hive. I'm a very, very busy, busy bee. Listen, I don't even know my brother's phone number, right? But because of that song, I can remember it. At 38 years old, something I learned at four. We don't understand the value of creed and song and liturgy because we don't do things in repetition anymore. The reality is the things that are shaping you are the things you're doing all the time. Most of y'all don't even come in for music because it's not your style. And so you wait till music is over, you show up late because you think it's cool. What you don't realize is this sermon will hit your ear and you'll forget it before you leave the building. But the songs you refuse to sing are the songs that are going to shape you more than this sermon. The music you listen to, the, the statements you make, the things you say over and over and over and over and over and over and over again are shaping you more than this sermon I'm preaching right now. And unless you commit yourselves to doing the things that are creedal, to doing the things that are liturgical, to doing the things that happen over and over again. I see how some of y'all complain that we do communion every week because you don't want it to get stale and uh, liturgical and, and kind of uh, uh, repeated. You're like, if we don't do it as much, then the romance stays in it. Now, that, that's just... How about this is not meant for romance and it's meant to shape you into something? The reason we take communion is because you need to remember what Christ has done for you all the time. Learning to do things over and over again are the things that are shaping you. So what I'm going to ask us to do is put this up on the screen, and I'm going to take verses 4 through 7, which is what Paul is saying. This is the creed that you guys say over and over again, and I want us to read it out loud. My hope is this would become a creed for us, because I think there's things in here that we need to say over and over again in order for it to sink deep into our hearts. Let's read it together. But when the goodness and love loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the creed. This is the song. This is what we need to memorize, say, repeat, get deep into our hearts because the more we say it, the more we speak it, the more we hear it, it's going to shape us in these ways. Which ways does this shape us? Well, verse 4 says this, God cares about you. Why does that matter? Because if we were honest, the biggest struggle that most of us have in this room is we don't believe God cares about us. If we were honest, we might even believe he hates us. And to take it based upon this trustworthy statement that God cares for you, he loves you, he appeared, and he showed you the greatest love through 
Jesus, God cares for you. Here's what I'm going to ask you to say out loud. God cares for us. The second thing, and you see in verse 5, is God changes us. Can I just help you with this? Most of you believe that salvation is only and primarily about forgiveness. That all you need is forgiveness, but you don't actually believe that God has the power to change you. See, doubt, salvation doesn't just offer forgiveness of sins, although yes, it does. But it offers far more than just forgiveness. Salvation deals with sin. Not based upon your works, but based upon His works. Listen to this. Sin has left a filthy stain upon us. We are completely dirty. And it's not something we can just wash off by good works. We are completely dirty because of sin. Both by nature and choice. All of the world is affected and living under this dirty stain of sin. And sin has so made us hide from God and our relationship with Him. And we have been stained by sin. But because of the work of the cross and what Christ has done upon the cross and the work that He accomplished, we are clean. It's hard for some of us to believe that we're clean. And we go around still acting like we are dirty, diminishing the work of the cross and not believing we are clean. You're not dirty. You're clean. Second, sin is very powerful and we are constantly hearing the whisper and for some of us the shouts of sin all around us. We are dominated and enslaved to sin. Sin is not just something that we are kind of tolerating and kind of trying to struggle with. The reality is many of y'all go around and use language like this. I'm struggling with something. And the re- I just, sometimes I, I just got to tell you, you ain't struggling. You're getting your butt whooped, right? You ain't even making a good fight back. Like you ain't struggling. There ain't a wrestle going on. You are getting, you're getting destroyed. It's powerful. But because of what Christ did in the resurrection, He did not just come out of the grave and and conquer death itself. He conquered sin. He took upon us as the sin of us all and that it died with Him in the grave. And when He came out of it, He just demonstrated He has complete power and authority over all sin. And in Christ, we no longer walk around slaves to sin, but we are free. And the power of sin no longer has power over us. We are clean. We are free. But we are living in a world where we feel the presence of sin all around us because the whole world is infected by the very presence of sin. And the only way we can have hope when we sense the presence of sin all around us is to remember that our God is returning again. And when He comes, He's eradicating the very sin from all the world. And that under His rule and reign, there will, uh, rule and reign, there will be a day where we will see and live with no sin we don't even know what that's like but there will be no sin the very presence of sin will be gone the stain of sin the power of sin the presence of sin is demolished in the work of christ you can be changed by the work of the gospel not just forgiven changed 
That's where he says that he's regenerated us. He's made us new. That word regenerate is Genesis again. He's taking us back to that created day that we are like new. He's created us and made us new. He's renewed us. He's changed us. God has filled us is what verse 6 says, that he's poured richly into us the Holy Spirit. This is hard for us to say because we're so used to being poor that we've developed our identity around being poor. There's something good about being poor that all of us have latched onto. We can constantly make excuses about not having enough. Right? I don't have enough. I'm poor. If I had more, I'd do it. How many of us use that excuse over and over again when it comes to every part of us following Christ? We're constantly talking about how we are lacking. But when you believe that the Holy Spirit has been poured into you richly, your excuses of being poor are gone because now you're rich. Walking as rich changes the game because now it's not, I don't have enough. It's that you're not utilizing what you have. You have everything you need in Christ being poured into you richly. Everything you need is in you. It is deposited into you by the Spirit. You are rich. You're not dirty. You're clean. You're, 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 not, uh, you're not under the power of it. You are free. And now you are, are submitted to Christ. He's, he's coming again. He's eradicating sin from us. He loves you. He cares for you. He's filled you. You're rich. And you go around saying everything opposite of that. And you're like, why do I have a struggle believing the gospel? Because your liturgy is shaping you. You say everything opposite of that. You preach an anti-gospel to yourself every day. I don't have enough. I'm dirty. I can't do it. What's the last thing we see in verse 7? This This should blow your mind. He makes us an heir. That gives us future hope. You are an heir to the throne. That means when he rules and reigns and all things are made new, we're going to be ruling and reigning alongside with him. He's given us authority in the kingdom. We're going to be walking and ruling and reigning with him, restored back to all the... You're an heir. That means you have a lot to look forward to. Now I can see why Paul would say, you should say that a lot. That should be the liturgy in which is said, especially in times where you're not believing it. That's why the community and the people of God should be preaching the gospel to each one of us, that we should embed ourselves in family, that we should just give ourselves this reality that in the family of God, we preach these things to each other. But then in verse eight, he goes into a place that may cause us confusion because he says, when you do that and you insist on saying these things over and over again, he says, so that you do that you keep saying that you keep singing that you insist on being centered around that so that those who believe it are careful to commit themselves to doing good works 
Here's where the confusion of good works comes in. First is, a lot of us have this idea that good works are automatic if you believe those things. Here's what I mean by that. We have this romanticized view of it that what happens is when the Spirit does those things, all those things take place, that we're not participants. So we just kind of go into kind of trance mode and God just works through us. So we're just trancing, right? And God's just doing all this stuff. The reality is, Paul says something completely opposite of that. He says, in your belief of these things, you need to commit yourselves. This is a very intentional committing to going, I'm going to do good works. Good works are not automatic. Let me just tell you this. You will not wander into good works. You will commit to doing them. The other thing is good works lose their power in many of our hearts when we hear that rewards are not attached to our good works in this sense, that we're not earning salvation. And I've heard so many people struggle with the reality, well, if I'm not earning salvation, then what's the point of doing good things? Which does expose the fact that you were only doing good things to try to earn something in the first place. But it also shows us that we do not understand what it means to really do these kinds of good works. And we feel like if we're not earning something, that we won't do it. And the reality is many of us are working for rewards. Scripture says there is a reward, that the wages of sin are death. What you deserve is death. And so what we begin to believe is Old Testament is grace, Old Testament is works, and New Testament is grace. Now we're just living under grace and works are irrelevant. But the reality is when somebody really gets these creeds and understands how rich they are and the work that's been poured into them and what Christ has done, works become more than just irrelevant. They become a powerful part of what it means to being in a loving, committing relationship with Christ. Lovers always outwork laborers but many of us think if i give them a reward they'll work a lot harder but there's a whole nother level of work and that is i love you so i'm going to serve and work for you and i'm gonna tell you until you get to that place in your covenant relationships where you're not trying to out reward each other if you do good things i'll do this for you you'll start to see a whole new level of marriage a whole new level of friendship a whole new level of life in the gospel when we start loving people and through that loving commitment we start being far better workers listen i'll do way more for my wife just because we love each other and we're in covenant than if she tried to pay me my wife does way more for us and our family far more than i could pay her or reward her and she's not doing it for rewards you'll find a whole new level of works when you realize it's not based on rewards and many of us struggle to do good works because we wonder about our motivation there are so many of us who have stopped doing good works because we don't want to have the wrong motivation here's what i mean by that some of us go, man, I was doing these things. I was feeding the homeless and I was, I was helping people and I was giving money away and I realized my, my motives were bad. So what I wanted to do was I'd just stop everything. I'm not going to give money. I'm not going to serve the homeless. I'm not going to do this because my motives were bad. 
Can you just see with me how foolish you sound? Because what needs to change is your motives, not your good works. You wouldn't even known your motives were bad unless you were doing good works and the Spirit started to show you the things. And the very thing you need to keep doing, you stop so you can mask your bad motives rather than realizing that the very evidence that your motivation is revealed to you was done through your good works. And the only way you're going to see your very heart is by committing yourself to good works. And through that, God shapes you in far more ways than you just sitting back and doing internal investigation of your motives we spend more time trying to mask our bad motives than we do about getting out there and doing the works of the gospel and we attach our motives if we're honest to what we feel how do you know your motives are bad well I feel like they are listen motives have to be far deeper than feelings because many of you are doing evil and running from sin and not living fruitful Christian lives because you're waiting to feel something. But here's the truth. Here's what Tom Schrader said, who's discipled many of us in redemption. He actually was the founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church that became redemption. He said this, and this is going to make it seem really hard for us, but he said this, do what is right because it's right until it feels right. That's hard for us. Do what is right because it's right until it feels right. What we do is, if it feels right, I do it until it doesn't feel right. Church, here's what we need to see. I want you to put this on the screen. And if I go long today, it's not because I went long. It's because those testimonies were long, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Those were awesome. We are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. If you get this mixed up, you're preaching a false gospel. This is important. Here's what I mean. If you say you're saved by good works, you're preaching a self-righteous and self-motivated gospel that you have to do good works to earn God's salvation. If you're dealing with this presence of sin that's constantly weighing you down and you see all the sin that's around you and in you and you're facing every day, the gospel you don't need to hear is you need to earn your salvation because you're going to live a hopeless gospel every day trying to earn the very love of God that's already been poured into you richly. What you need to hear is you don't have to earn nothing God loves you not only are you not saved by good works but you're saved by grace is you need to hear that you're not saved through good works you're saved through faith. And here's what I mean by that. Many of us look at faith in this way, that we're just going to sit and tell ourselves, I can do this. I can do this. Listen, I can do it. I can do it. This is the way a lot of us find motivation, by just telling ourselves, I got this. I can do this. Come on, you got this. This is the best way we encourage each other. You can do this. Just dig deep. You can find it. Just dig deep. And the gospel preaches something completely different than being saved through your efforts. It says this, you're actually saved through trusting not through doing not through I can do this but I can 
trust you. I trust you, Jesus. I give my life to you. I believe in your work. Your work for me is more than enough, and I trust you with my whole life, and your posture is not I can do this, but I submit. I follow, and I'm tired of being my own God, and I trust you. We're saved by grace through faith for good works. And this is where people get confused. But hopefully, as a community, we can illustrate this together. So many of us say by good works or through good works rather than for good works. And what we focus on is by grace through faith, and we cut off this reality that we're saved by grace. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of God. And faith without works is dead. You have not just been saved to be forgiven and be happy. You've been saved for a purpose. God wants to do something through you to bless the world. He's blessed you to be a blessing to all nations. The work that God wants to do through you is for good works. And here's what you have to understand about this is that people may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let me tell you a couple things about good works that hopefully will help you. Did you know that 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 11, write it down and study it later, Peter's speaking and he says in, in this text that many of us don't understand that those who are doing good works have a sense of confidence that those who are not doing good works can't experience. Many of you are lacking confidence in your faith in Christ. Like, how do I know that I'm saved? And much of that is connected to that your faith is not active and you're not doing anything. So you're lacking confidence. Listen, there is a, a beautiful thing about doing the work of God, meaning you're living selflessly, serving others. Something takes place in your relationship where you're partnering with Jesus in his work that he wants to do in the world, and there's a sense of confidence. The reality is many of you have backed away from serving, giving your life away, and you've become self-centered, and you're wondering why you're lacking confidence in salvation because you're all about you. And if you keep looking at you, you will never find confidence in yourself because there's not enough. You want to know what else it says about good works? Hebrews. Hebrews says something interesting. He says, some of y'all should have been teachers by now, but you're still drinking milk, and I can't even give you meat because meat is for the active people. I, I've heard so many people talk about, man, let's just get the meat. Let's get the meat. Let's get into a big study and just do scripture study. Let's do what let's break apart the Greek and just kind of have Hebrew discussions and just talk about context. All that stuff is awesome, but that's not meat. Y'all don't need meat to sit around. Just sitting around and studying Greek is gonna make you fat. Meat is for the doers. The reason why Paul said y'all need milk is because you're lazy and you're inactive. And milk is for lazy people. Meat is for active people. Meat is for people who are doing good works. I'm going to tell you this. When God feeds us, when God does this work, the reason why we need to repeat that liturgy and get it deep in our hearts is because hearing the truth about God cares and hearing the truth about God loves us and hearing the truth that He's saved us and hearing the truth that He's changed us and filled us and that we are heirs, here's what it does for us. 
We should not leave going, well, I don't have nothing to do. We should leave going, man, I got a huge part to play in the gospel work. Live on mission. See the needs of people around you and spend time meeting them, living sacrificially, serve people, connect with people, be active because most of your Christian life is spent trying to manage sin rather than doing good. I'm going to tell you this, if you're doing good, you won't have time to sit around and hope that you don't do something. That's why he says if you walk in the spirit, you won't do those fleshly things. Can I, can I just tell you this? So many of you are on the defensive. You're trying to just not do wrong things that you're not living on the offensive, and that is living out the gospel in your life. How many people are you serving? Like, I'm serious. Like, it is better for you to have so many people that you're serving than for us to just sit around and try to take care of ourselves. How many people are we giving ourselves away to? How many people are we praying for? How many people are we displaying the gospel to? In work? How many people are seeing our good works and glorifying our Father who is in heaven? It's that kind of life that we experience. A confidence in salvation. We experience a, a meat that we've never experienced before. And i got to end with this story. And I know I'm going long, but you've got to grab this. I talked to my dad who discipled me in ministry, in life, and I talked to him when I was working for him as a pastor, and I'll end with this, and we'll take communion. I said, Dad, why is it that we keep having classes, and we keep bringing people, and we keep teaching them, and we keep bringing, and, not, and it's hard for people to live this out. Why is it? And I said, Dad, we need to, we need to feed them. We need to feed them. And he goes, Son, when Jesus met with the Samaritan woman, his disciples went away to get food. And when they came back, the disciples said to him, Jesus, here's your food. And Jesus said, I don't want no more food. They're like, what? Who brought him food? And he said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. My food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus was showing them that you actually get fed when you're doing God's word and living it out and most of us think what feeding means is us just sitting around and kind of reading and feeding ourselves and the preacher and how many times I've heard somebody say man if you just, I'm just not getting fed at that church anymore the reality is I'm not meant to sit here and feed you all the reality of this is until you start living it out you're not going to experience the food of doing God's will I am more fed by doing God's will than I am by just sitting around and getting fat with theological truth. Because when I see someone being changed by the gospel through his spirit's work through me, I'm going, wow, I don't need no food. That was filling. That was good. Church, You've been saved by grace. You have nothing to earn. It's not by works. It's through faith. But God has a purpose for you that you're going to only experience as that faith goes to work and you do good things. Self-sacrificing things, things in which you're giving yourself away. And as you come to this table, 
and you partake of his body and blood, I pray that it nourishes you to live. That you remember all the work that Christ has done, but it nourishes you to go and live because this food is to give us very, the very lifeblood to go out and do the things that God has called us to. You've been called to do good works. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.